I now rather miss the political apathy that we all enjoyed before the current Brexit obsession overwhelmed our media and conversations. That happier time before the referendum 1,265 days ago when our individual views on Europe were merely a matter of personal preference. Now 32 days from the next democratic event, politics has warped to become our defining identity. You are a lever or a remainer. Tribal divisions that have shattered political parties, split friendships, divided families and devoured to date at least two prime ministers. Now with opinions so openly divided and emotions running rather high, it's probably not the smartest topic to talk about from the pulpit. But don't worry, I'm not going to ask anyone which side of the debate you are on, and I'm certainly not going to be sharing my opinion or offering any advice. Instead, what I want each of us to consider this evening is how we feel about those who hold the opposite Brexit view to us. Because you see, I think there's one thing about Brexit 100% of us agree on. We all think we are right, and the other side is wrong. So at this time of hostility and division, our passage this evening has particular resonance and provides some timely advice to help us learn how to disagree more agreeably. Because in Luke 6, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 6 verse 27, Jesus teaches, Jesus tells us to love your enemies. Now I think in this modern age we've perhaps so overused and misused both the word love and the word enemy that we risk missing the true power and real purpose of this verse. We love so many things. I love Japanese food, gadgets, technology, boats, salted caramel, a nice warm bath and on certain very rare occasions my family. But if our idea of love has been sexualized, sentimentalized and commercialized, so our concept of enemies has equally been trivialized. My only nemesis-grade enemies that come to mind this evening are Mid-Sussex District Council Planning Department and BT Openreach Customer Support. But I think our enemies used to be more obvious. In the movies, it was the bad guys that wore black hats and the good guys white hats. I grew up during the Cold War when it was the Russians in their fur hats that always represented the enemy. And like other nostalgia from my youth, that stereotype seems to be coming back into fashion. But in the modern world of frenemies, passive aggression, microaggressions and perpetual offence, we're enveloped in a kind of tinnitus of low-grade disagreement and stress that threatens to escalate at any moment into full-blown anger and dispute. I've rarely seen a Facebook post or online comment section that was more than two posts away from someone angrily accusing a complete stranger of being a fascist. Too often we challenge those that disagree with us, not by debating the legitimate differences between our perspectives and opinions, but instead by impugning the other's motives, insulting their intelligence, questioning their sanity and challenging their integrity. If you and I disagree, it must be because there's something wrong with you. Arguments over Trump or Brexit descend quickly, even amongst career diplomats and politicians, into insults and personal attacks for the sake then of our unity and our sanity as we turn to the passage this evening is Jesus serious is it even possible really possible to love our enemies now Jesus highlights that what he's about to say will certainly be difficult to hear and most likely misunderstood in verse 27 it begins but to you who are listening 
Now, I don't believe that Jesus was referring to intermittent problems with the PA system or people asleep in the back row or those tweeting, texting and fiddling with their phones. The crowd could absolutely hear him perfectly, but most had not come to listen, but just to watch the show. They'd just turned up out of curiosity, hoping for a spectacle or a miracle. Jesus was speaking to a deeply divided nation, living under a hostile occupation, to a crowd whose enemies were very, very real, and who lived in a culture where revenge was an acceptable part of everyday life and Old Testament teaching. Jesus' command to love your enemies would have been utterly shocking, potentially treasonous, and wildly unpopular. If the Sermon on the Plains had a comments section, Jesus would, I'm sure, have quickly been accused of fascism. But Jesus was not just using exaggeration to provoke controversy or stress some abstract theological point. Jesus does indeed long to teach us how to radically transform our hearts, our relationship with him and our understanding of God's grace. Jesus is deadly serious. His command to love our enemies is actually followed by three really practical instructions. If you look first in verse 27, he instructs us to do good to those who hate you. Well, you see, we're called not just to merely ignore or tolerate those who hate us, not even just to avoid taking revenge, but to demonstrate proactive acts of love towards our enemies, to show our love by our actions. I mean, we show our love toward those closest to us by those little things that we do for them every day. Setting Valentine's Day apart for our most flamboyant acts of deliberate totemic affection. Jesus says, let every day be a sort of Valentine's Day, demonstrating acts of love toward our enemies. Now, I suspect that the Mid-Sussex District Council planning officer would be concerned if I sent him champagne and a box of heart-shaped chocolates but I can be all that bit more thoughtful, positive and intentional every time I consider my actions towards my enemies. Secondly, in verse 28, Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Now, while this language of blessing and cursing sounds rather quaint and old-fashioned, I think this is probably the most urgent and difficult lesson for us today. Because the word bless simply means to speak well of or to speak well to someone. And likewise, our enemies are identified in verse 28 as those who curse us, anyone who speaks ill of us. Throughout the Bible, we read of the extraordinary power our words possess, a power and responsibility now amplified by modern uh, media and communication. If we're not careful, the impersonal nature of messages, posts and comments makes it easy to use that power of our speech in profoundly negative and devastatingly hurtful ways. We must choose and use our words carefully to encourage others and build them up. In an interview with the Sunday Times two weeks ago, Justin Welby said, I think we've become addicted to an abusive and binary approach to political discourse. It's either my way or you're my total enemy. There have been inflammatory words used on all sides, in Parliament and outside, traitor, fascist, all kinds of really bad things have been said at the highest level in politics. There is a great danger to doing this when we're already in a very polarised and volatile situation. How we speak, whether directly to one another, gossiping behind each other's backs or posting online, really matters. 
When I preach, my words are carefully chosen and often edited several times to more clearly express what I want to say. I'm not sure, however, I always pay such close attention to how I speak to and about even those that I love. But Jesus encourages us always to speak deliberately in a way to build one another up, even those who speak ill of us. Finally, in verse 28, Jesus also says to pray for those who mistreat you. Well, this at least seems easy because I pray for my enemies all the time. God, please smite my enemies, punish them, humiliate them, may they suffer a a plague of boils, show them the error of their ways that they may come to know my superiority. In Jesus' name, amen. No. Jesus says in addition to our actions and our words, we are to genuinely wish well and pray positively for the good of those who wish us harm. Pray earnestly that those who mistreat you will experience God's grace, know his blessing, enjoy his comfort, benefit from his healing, and enter into his peace, even when, perhaps especially when, they don't deserve it. Because isn't that exactly what God did for me and for you? He didn't wait for us to become perfect, at least certainly not with me. You see, the whole idea of loving our enemies is difficult because if we're honest, most of us, however hard we try, just don't feel love towards our enemies. Which means there's a risk this evening of beating yourself up. If Jesus taught that we should love our enemies and I'm unable to immediately feel warm, fuzzy feelings towards my worst enemy, then that must mean I have insufficient faith. Or if I can't feel that love, Does God even still love me? Well, please, if you heard nothing else tonight after I said the word Brexit, hear this. God loves you. And there is nothing in this passage which says that if only your faith were stronger or that if only you were a little more holy, you would suddenly feel an overwhelming, fluffy affection towards your enemies. Because if we look again, this passage is not about feelings or emotions at all. Yes, Jesus says, love your enemies. Love them with your actions, love them with your words, and love them with your prayers, as you grow to love them with your heart. In modern language, the word love is often no more than a rather soppy or saccharine expression of some fluffy feeling, a bit like indigestion. In the New Testament, love refers not to a feeling at all, but to a way of treating people, an active, unconditional, deliberate kind of love, defined and demonstrated by Jesus' actions and teachings. Luke 6 declares, don't let the act of loving wait for some fuzzy feeling. Just do love, say love, pray love, act in love today to make love happen. Jesus' command isn't to go away and work on your faith till you are holy enough to suddenly feel love. It is to make a decision to act first, speak first, and pray first out of a heart attitude of love. Bob Goff, one of my favourite Christian authors, writes a lot about loving difficult people, and he puts it this way. Faith isn't figuring out what we're able to do. It's deciding what we're going to do, even when we think we can't. The word Jesus uses here for love is not then a feeling. It's agape, which is not the same love I have for Mexican food, or even for my wife, my family, or my friends. 
Agape is defined as love that is committed to the highest good of the one loved. Agape love is not a feeling, but an action that stems from an attitude. It is a sacrificial love that willingly suffers inconvenience, discomfort, and even death solely for the benefit of another. So don't worry if liking your enemies seems impossible. It is. But loving our enemies, though difficult, is a choice, an action, an attitude, a habit, a commitment, a sacrifice. Another of my favourite Bob Goff quotes is that love is not a warm feeling we get when we agree with Jesus. It's who we are becoming as we follow Jesus. That's the sermon in a sentence. Loving our enemies is about us all doing love while we become love. In verse 35, then your reward will be great, sounds good, and you'll be children of the Most High, sounds pleasing, because he is kind to the ungrateful, that doesn't make sense, and wicked, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Now that doesn't sound fair, that doesn't seem reasonable, but it's true because grace never seems fair until you need some for yourself. And if that doesn't feel like justice, well, my friend Bob even has a quote for that too. God loves justice, and there can be no love without justice. But there can also be no justice without love. Which is where Luke 6 intersects with the comfort and the challenge of Psalm 37. The comfort being absolute confidence that God's ultimate triumph is assured, but the challenge being that we're called to wait day by day, even when things do not seem right or fair. We're not called to argue or get distracted by earthly rewards, victories or fairness. We're called to trust and not to fret, to take delight in the Lord and commit ourselves to him, to wait patiently and refrain from anger. Psalm 37 teaches that God's justice is inevitable and declares that love prevails. You see, whilst the, world fav- whilst the world favors the powerful, celebrates winners and rewards the wealthy, Psalm 37 reminds us that God's victory belongs to the meek and not the mighty. Now, while conventional wisdom considers the meek powerless, hopeless, and easily taken advantage of, the Old Testament promises and Jesus teaches it is they who will inherit the earth. Because meekness is not the opposite of strength. The beautiful origin of the word meek comes from the taming, the bringing under control of the incredible strength and awesome power of a wild stallion. To be meek, then, is not weakness. It is power under control. Strength with forbearance. Passion with a purpose. It is discipline and courage sourced from absolute trust, faith and dedication to one's master. To be meek is to take every ounce of your wild strength, fierce spirit, untamed passion and raw energy and harness it to the discipline and direction of God's will. How much more power, purpose and utility is there in a meeked warhorse than the unbridled chaos of the wildest stallion? Loving our enemies isn't a sign of weakness or symbol of surrender, but a demonstration of the true love and real strength only possible through meekness to the God of love. 
we can be less divided and bogged down in trying to win our temporary disputes when we're assured that God's eternal victory is already won. We have a sure and certain hope in a God that doesn't just love us but knows nothing but that same redemptive, forgiving love that Jesus encourages us to show our enemies. The same love God has for me, he has for my enemies. God loves Brexiteers and Remainers. He loves red scarves and blue scarves. He loves white hats, black hats and fur hats. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, it's not because they are likable but because God loves them. Because of his great love, our strength and hope doesn't rest on us winning fights or dominating arguments, but simply in the absolute confidence that God's victory is already won. (coughs) True love is not some fluffy feeling or holy habit, but an intentional attitude of love which reflects and radiates the grace we have all already received. It is a love we can freely show our enemies with our hands, declare with our lips, and honour with our prayers to the glory of the God of love. Amen.